Welcome to another episode of Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. My name is Werner. I'm with Jackson, and we have a very special guest today. His name is Brandon O'Brien. And Jackson, could you uh, introduce Brandon to us, please? Absolutely. Brandon, uh, well, first off, I'll get the formalities out because uh, he's now become a friend. So it feels awkward, you know, get doing <laughs> doing all the titles. But he has his PhD from TED's uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in historical theology. And now he is the director of content for City to City, organization ultimately ran by Tim Keller. Brandon is uh, new to our, our city of Phoenix. And so it's been such a so fun to get to hang out with you. And he comes to our office on a regular basis. So I'll let you introduce yourself now. So uh, in my work for City to City, we do create resources with Tim Keller and others in our North America offices. But my primary objective is uh, recruiting and developing writers from outside the U.S. in our global networks um, to create resources related to church planting and cultural engagement and faith and work and mercy and justice and and um, those kinds of things. And so that gets me into conversations about contextualization all the time. Um, and increasingly, as our work used to be primarily focused in sort of upper class city center um, professional sort of uh, groups in cities, and as our mission has grown beyond that to encompass the whole city, there's a lot higher need for more sensitive contextualization. And so it's a it's a fun challenge, but um, but it is a, a lot of new work for a lot of our networks. Okay, it's not every day that you have a uh, historical theologian talking a lot about contextualization. So uh, how did that work out? How did that make, make that leap? Yeah, I didn't know the word contextualization at the time, but when I was in college, my roommate was Austrian. He was a conservative evangelical Christian from Salzburg, and I was a conservative evangelical Christian from Bentonville, Arkansas. And when we started, as we got to know each other better, I realized that there are a lot of things that we both take for granted as being true culturally that uh, that we didn't share, even though we shared a Christian worldview and a high commitment to the scriptures, um, even things like drinking or smoking or whatever that for me were clearly forbidden um, for him. These were fine in moderation and it had never occurred to him that this would be something, you know, and so just gut level reactions to certain topics or issues began to realize like there's certain things in addition to my faith that are influencing the way I engage the scriptures and interact with other people, etc. And it took a long time for me to to begin to understand those dynamics. But I think historical theology helped because when you read the reformers and others, uh, they will often introduce clauses with, as any reasonable person, you know, will assume, or, you know, as as is, as is clear to reason and to experience or, you know, whatever. And then they'll make some claim that I just don't agree with. And I think, well, I, I think I'm reasonable. I think you're probably reasonable, but this is not a plain interpretation. This is not a... Uh, your instinctive interpretation is not my instinctive interpretation. And theoretically, my whole Protestant belief system is based on your work. So mm. how is it that we have such vastly different presuppositions when kind of self-consciously we share the most important ones? Yeah. Our view of Scripture, our, you know, understanding kind of foundational beliefs about God and the universe, and yet can come to such significantly different places. Yeah, and if uh, if I remember correctly, most of our listeners will probably know you through I think it was your first book, I guess, uh, misreading scripture with Western eyes. Was that, was that yeah, your first? That was the second. That was your yeah. second book. Yeah. Okay, uh, but no one remembers the first either, so it's no problem. Well, well <laughs> that's I mean, how it goes. That, that is definitely every, everybody you know is, is familiar with that book because it just was tremendously successful. I literally walked from my dissertation defense into my dorm room. I was staying in a, in a dorm at the time and um, emailed the editors for EMQ and said, hey, send me a book to review. They sent me yours. And that, and I digested it so fast and I said, oh, wow, this just this has everything I've been thinking in much better, but much better ways. Uh, and so it's had such a big impact. So. Uh, maybe more people need to uh, get PhDs in history, historical <laughs> theology. <laughs> maybe, we'll, maybe we'll get better contextualization. Yeah. <laughs> so 
on that note, what are some of the most common misunderstandings that you have found that people have about contextualization? Yeah, as you guys know, it's complex. There's a lot of moving parts. Could probably isolate a lot of things. But I think the thing that is that I'm wrestling with right now um, most aggressively is that is the assumption that contextualization is a one directional process, right? So the assumption that that I have often in ministry context we talk about, or if we look in scriptures at Paul and in Athens, Acts 17, what we think we see him doing is he's got a fully formed message that he understands completely, and he's just looking for the right way to connect the dots to a new audience. And so it's all one directional. I have this thing, I'm trying to give it to you, and I need to remove the barriers so that you can receive it. Mm. Um, when I think actually, even in the scriptures, if you look prior to Acts 17, Philip, when he talks to the eunuch, or Peter, when he's interacting with Cornelius or others, there's a very two-directional, you know, one person shares the gospel, another person hears part of it and asks questions, and the person who's sharing goes, well, that's a good question. I hadn't thought of that. And and then it forces them to rethink the, not just the presentation, but at some level, maybe the content itself, or at least the implications of it. Mm. And so what you get in Acts 15 is the Jerusalem council saying, look, we've had all these experiences with people receiving the gospel who we would not have expected to receive it. Therefore, we got to rethink how we let them in the church, right? Yeah, that's, like that's a, a pretty significant sure. difference. It's kind of shocking to think that your experience would impact your theology. And we resist that idea. Right. But it's far more true than we might want to acknowledge, isn't it? That's right. And I think we, you know, it's, I'm trying to unpack some history here in order to help aid in conversations, right? Because people are resistant. They think what I'm saying when I talk about this is that we ought to let our experiences influence our interpretation. Really what I'm saying is, no, whether we want them to or not, <laughs> our inf our experiences influence our interpretation. It so could own be, it. So own it. It could be dangerous yeah. subjectivity if you're not aware of it. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. But if you're aware of it, then you can go, oh, I see, I'm making this move right now. Let me try to make a different one and see if if that opens up a new interpretation or if it gets me around a problem or something. Right. So the, so I'm not prescribing experience as a tool and in interpretation. I'm just saying it is. We sometimes pretend that it isn't because of, we have certain methodologies and approaches that we think prevent us from bringing our experiences to the text. Yeah. I'm trying to kind of make explicit what's implicit. Yeah. One of the misreadings of misreading scripture with Western eyes is to say, I've seen people say, well, they're destructive. They're saying, well, this is not right. That's not right. That's not right. And totally missing the point that you're simply, their thesis is what you just mentioned. You're not trying to actually go through a systematic theology of what's right and wrong on these different points. So let's be more explicitly constructive for those who insist that, what are some of the cultural dynamics that you think most prominently influence our interpretation of scripture, our, our contextualization for better or worse? Yeah. What we're doing in misreading scripture with Western eyes is trying to identify patterns that are consistent enough for all of us that if we become aware that this is a way we commonly misread, then being aware of it gives us a chance to counteract it, mm -hmm. right? So we're not saying it's inevitable. You can't ever get out of this habit, but we are saying if you're not aware of it, just like any habit, you're just going to keep doing it until somebody calls you out on it and you yeah. can you know, be conscious about counteracting the influence. And so one of them that we talk about that's really uh, significant is the difference between the assumption of sort of an individual interpretation and application versus a collective interpretation and application. And what I think is, is fascinating, so if you take the passage, the reference escapes me here, but do you not know that your temple is a body, uh, or that the your body, body is, a is a temple of the Holy Spirit? First Corinthians. So... In English, unless you're Southern like I am, there's not a great plural you. We got y'all, which right. is great. That's right. Um, but in the in that text, all the yous are plural. Mm. But we read them as singular, yeah. mm. partly because the way our English language works, we don't have a formal plural you in English. We have lots of colloquial ones, but we don't have a formal one. That either creates or reinforces this sense that when I read you, you're always talking about the reader, the individual reader, right? What's interesting is all the yous are plural, but 
all the other nouns are singular. So temple and body and mm. whatever are, are singular. So it's y'all, plural, mm. together are one body, mm. which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is a different sort of application than each of you individually in your individual bodies is a temple mm. of the Holy Spirit, right? For me, it was don't get tattoos because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> don't drink because your body is a temple. Don't, you know, so there's that sense of individualizing mm. the application because we, without even thinking about it, just take that passage to be individualistic. Mm. Whereas Paul, in the broader context, Paul is talking about someone in the church's sleeping with a prostitute and that somehow that individual's sin because together they make up a body, a single body, it has implications for everybody. And that's a, it's an interpretation that's impossible for us. If we're reading purely individualistically, once somebody makes it aware that there's a collective way to read it, it's Mm. still, we still chafe, right? It's Mm. like, that can't be right. But we've at least opened the door to see something we would have missed if we had read it in a it's purely such a individual subtle assumption. Yep. One one illustration I've given students before is imagine a, a puzzle with say a hundred pieces and it's all put together and I ask them, is this this thing on the table, is this a hundred things or is it one thing? Mm-hmm. And I have found that Easterners tend to say one thing and Westerners tend to say a hundred things. Yeah. Like that's interesting. On the whole, that's where they tend to err. Right. And it's just automatic. Yeah. It's not like you suddenly, you know, philosophize out. Just, That's oh, right. It's just that. It's one. And I think the the beauty of this kind of awareness about our cultural biases, you know, some might say, well, it's dangerous because we never get to really knowing the truth. We're always right. questioning ourselves, that kind of thing. But in the example that you just gave, Brandon, it's pretty simple. It's there in the Greek text. It's actually getting us closer to what the author's intent was writing that text and what Paul's trying to communicate. So this, you know, the whole point of this is becoming more faithful to Scripture and being able to communicate with greater authority what the text is saying. That's right. Well, and I think it's a very practical step with this particular impulse of reading it individualistically when you run into the word you, is you could say... As a very practical step, from now on, every time you see the word you, read y'all and -hmm. see what happens. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you'll be wrong because in the Greek it's a singular instead of a plural. But right now you're wrong a lot of the time because most of the time it's a plural instead of a singular and you're reading it the wrong way. But it's a very practical way to just say, okay, now try it. And if you try it, then it's like suddenly things become possible that weren't possible before. Certain ways of seeing it are available that weren't available before. It opens new doors for application. That's right. Thinking about ourselves as, you know, who do we belong to? Yeah, that's right. I'm glad we're talking about this and giving a concrete example because one of the things that I'm motivated by that I don't think shows up in in the book anywhere, and I don't know if I've put this in print anywhere, but I think Leslie Newbegin said this years ago, that evangelicalism has sort of replaced a magisterium with scholars, right? So instead of having a pope that tells you how to interpret the Bible, we now have biblical scholars, philosophers, systematicians, whatever, kind of telling us, no, that's a right way, that's a wrong way to read. It takes the Bible away from from ordinary people to feel like I can't engage this text unless I get the input of this preacher or of that scholar or of that whatever. And in my heart, I think that the things that we're talking about actually helps give the Bible back to people mm. because not everybody can take four years of their life and get an MDiv, but everybody could have a handful of tools to know themselves better and apply them today without any delay, without moving their family or borrowing money or doing whatever, and get further ahead in reading than they can get without any other tools, right? And so, so I'm sensitive to that. Now, that being said, I have spoken about this often in churches, and in almost every case that I can think of, at least one person in the end it raises their hand in the end and says, this is all great, but if I don't have a bunch of countercultural experiences or cross-cultural experiences, and if I haven't read what you've read, and how in the world am I going to know how to do all this? And so they do feel like I'm adding a, a barrier or a layer. I haven't quite figured out how to break that perception, but I think the what I would want people to hear is that I'm... We're not trying to say that you have to be experts in 
cross-cultural communication or a number of other things, really, in my mind, we're trying to equip people with means of self-reflection that they can use all the time to kind of help apply different lenses when they read to to create new possibilities and see if that helps. Yeah. Well, tell me, tell me what you think about this. Uh, I'll put my neck out there. I, I was teaching. I'm teaching this class this semester on reading Romans with Eastern eyes, and a student asked, somewhat in despair, cynical. I'm not exactly sure. Saying, "Does this mean that we're always misinterpreting the Bible? That none of us can really interpret it right?" And it was almost like a like, "Why try?" Yeah. And I said, "No, no, no. It's not that we can't interpret it, that we can't get things right. It's that we're all going to be limited." And so, yes, we can get the truth, but we're all going to have limited perspectives. And so we need to be in more conversation so that we can touch different parts of the elephant, as it were. Yeah, Jackson, I love that because it's it's like we're on a journey. We don't have all the answers. And the Bible is this incredible, huge, ancient book that takes a lifetime to, to understand and, and apply. And uh, it doesn't mean that what we're applying today isn't valuable or isn't valid. But it means there's always more to learn, and so there's this posture of humility that we take to it and knowing that we're in conversation. I, I love that. Well, I think one feature of our instinctive individualism is that we feel like with the right tools and enough time all by myself, I can get the answers I need to my questions. One of the things that I would urge is exactly what you guys have said is to say, you don't need to doubt the sufficiency of the scriptures. You need to dis- to doubt your own individual sufficiency to get everything out of them that's in there. <laughs> and so yeah, the, the best next step is just to bring someone else into the conversation. What do you see that I don't? And again, that's a free, you could do that this afternoon, right? <laughs> just to call somebody up and said, hey, I was reading this passage. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. What do you, what do you, what stands out to you? Mm. Um, and it doesn't mean that they're instinctive reading is better than yours, but if it's different, then it gives you some place to start digging in to say, I wonder why I went there and he went there or she went there, right? And And it just gives you a a point of dialogue. You're not saying that everybody's or someone else's perspective, Eastern culture, African culture, European culture is better than this other one. It's just all different. So one of the things I've learned from you lately is a new word. Uh, for raptor, it's not a dinosaur. But you know, as you know, why is he talking about dinosaurs? Like, explain how what a raptor is and how that relates to everything we're talking about. Yeah, good. So I don't even know if I'm saying it right. I know it from looking at the word it on sure the screen. Like yeah, raptor. So the raptor is that contraption at the eye doctor that's got all the different lenses that they put over your nose and they say, you know, he says, is this one clear? Is this one clear? Is this one clear? This one, the single most stressful test in the universe. I as far as back, I know. So I'm like, can you do that again? <laughs> exactly. I'm always afraid I'm going to come out with these giant Coke bottle lenses because I failed the test, you know? Um, and so, yeah, so the phoropter applies over your eyes, which are your native set of lenses, applies a series of new lenses to to see how far off perfect vision you are, right? Mm-hmm. So I think the it's diagnostic um, and it's subjective. So it's it's you and the doctor doing the best you can to say this one's clear, that one's clear. And then it's not the only test a eye doctor uses, but it's one of them, right, in the battery of tests. And so I think what I like about this is I've, I think about um, you can't take off your native lenses, you you can't if if I'm I'm a North American white male, seminary educated Arkansan Arkansan, I'll always be those things, and I I won't ever stop being those things. But what I can do is I can add lenses over my native lenses, mm. and those things will change the sharpness of what I'm seeing. Right, yeah. and so I think I think increasingly I'm thinking in terms of not trying to remove, I think that the subtitle, but removing cultural blinders is in, mm-hmm. in our subtitle. I think it's not removing so much as it's being aware of and then correcting mm-hmm. and countering with a different cultural lens that can help bring things into sharper focus. And so it's a little like if I'm reading a passage and it doesn't make sense, if I say, well, what if I read this from a, try to read it from a collectivist point of view, and then I read it and it still doesn't make So that's a new lens. Mm-hmm. If it still doesn't quite make sense, I'm like, well, what if I apply like an honor-shame mm-hmm. filter th- to this? And that's another lens. It's like, is this clear or is this clear? Is this clear? And so the kind of cumulative of just trying to test it out, you know, I think is why that image yeah. is, is appealing. Hey, guys. I am the theologian in residence 
at a fantastic organization called Mission One, who sponsors this podcast. We partner with the global church in making communities more like the kingdom of God. Mission One partners with locally led ministries and denominations on projects, training, and relief efforts in their own communities. From clean water and education, to church planning and discipleship, to theological training and contextualization, Mission One desires to see every community transformed for the glory of God and the honor of all peoples. If you want to learn more about our work at Mission One, visit us at missionone.org. One of the aspects of cultural lenses is the myths that we believe and we buy into. And, and by myths, we're not talking about like fairy tales. We're talking about overarching stories that give meaning and significance, whatnot. You have suggested that there are four major myths that make us who we are. Can you kind of unpack that? Yeah. And I, good. I like your definition. Myth is a scary word. People are already nervous that we're <laughs> overcomplicating reading the Bible. Now we're talking about myths, right? So um, I think myth, a myth is, I like to, the shorthand as a, a meaning-making story. So it's the way someone takes, or a community or a nation takes information, experiences, et cetera, and then strings them together to, to make, to interpret them, to make sense out of them, right? And I'm motivated by the idea that we're not first purely rational. We don't just look at all the information and deduce, but that even the way we look at information is filtered through these stories that we grow up in or that we, in, you know, inherit and uh, receive from, from the culture around us. And so I'll list them and then can dip in wherever you want to dip in. But so the four, I think, are a personal myth, which is the meaning that people make out of their own individual lives, right? Their the personal experiences. And I think as a just a quick example, we can come back to it. Anyone with siblings knows that multiple people can grow up in the same home, have very similar experiences, but then interpret those experiences very differently. So when adult children get together at a holiday and talk about their childhood, someone's like, wasn't this a wonderful experience? And somebody else is like, no, it was terrible because it was another example of how X happens. And you realize that even though you have shared experiences, you have different, you've constructed different meaning out of them. And so that's the, the personal myth. The second is a communal myth, which is the um, stories your your immediate community tells to make sense of its experience. So whether that, you know, for me growing up, middle lower middle class, working class, white, Southern, evangelical, et cetera, those all have kind of, you know, meaning-making Would that arc, include family? Arcs. Yeah, I think your family of origin would in, would be included um, probably, yeah, in the... These are not hard and fast. Sure, sure, sure. So that's... It could be in your personal myth that's kind of shaping because there are, your family helps you in the first instant kind of interpret some of those events. I think in the communal ones, a little broader. So not your religion, Christianity, but like the congregation you grew up in, the very specific yeah. religious community. Classmates at school. Classmates at school. Coworkers. Yep. Okay. I think if you're in a, um, you know, if you are ethnic minority that grows up in an ethnic minority community, mm -hmm. then that has a different community story that shapes it than a majority culture mm -hmm. community yeah. nearby, right? Sure. And so... I think it's interesting then, so like with the community myth, if you take, you know, someone like we, we use with a personal myth, two siblings in the same family can come, can make very different meaning out of their personal experiences. Mm -hmm. I think communities give you a script and a, roles and ways of interpreting the things that happen. And so that within a church, if I'm straight and committed and involved in the youth ministry and a classmate is gay and feels conflicted about it and is not, you know, all that committed to the mm -hmm. same church, 10 years from now, those experiences within the community have caused us to interpret our yeah. personal stories in very different ways, right? So either acceptance by or rejection of the community. Well, and they were some of the race things. So the O.J. Simpson trial or uh, some other trial or video that we come on, you know, different communities, different ethnic, ethnic groups, racial groups are going to respond differently. That's right. They say, obviously, the cop did this. You know. That's right. Well, and I think the O.J. Simpson trial is an interesting example because one one explanation I've heard about why like white Americans are shocked 
slash devastated by the verdict. Many black Americans were ex- shocked and excited about the verdict. And how do you account for the difference? Well, if if one a part of the communal myth in for majority culture Americans is that the justice system is impartial, that justice is blind, that the system works, and therefore if you're prosecuted, it's because you're guilty. Mm. And if you're What's the other word? I've just lost it. Um, acquitted. <laughs> and again, if the glo- if, it, if the glove fits, you must acquit. Right? Yeah, I should right, have known right, that. Right, right, right. <clears throat> so I think the uh, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Anyway, the the point being that part of the myth is the impartiality mm. of the system. Mm. Part of the communal myth in minority cultures may be the extreme partiality of the system that a conviction. Or acquittal has nothing to do with guilt or innocence. It has everything to do with power and structures and et cetera. So I've heard I've heard black Americans say that part of what was encouraging about the O.J. Simpson trial, even if you thought he was guilty, is that black people don't beat the system. And here's a black man that beat the system. So it's like there's it means something different. Yeah in that communal myth than it does for white people. It might be the system's broken because this person avoided justice. In another community, it might be the system's always been broken. This time it worked to our advantage. Usually it works to your advantage. Right. And so I think seeing the way that those two different interpretations, those those narratives, the myths shape your instinctive reaction to an event or to the scriptures or, or to whatever it is. Yeah. So, Personal, I'll try to be briefer on the other. Personal, communal, third is national. Um, sort of understanding of the trajectory of the, the country, what our ideals are, who are the heroes and villains, what's the purpose that we're working toward, what are the the sort of deeply held values, etc. And the two examples I like to give are the 1619 Project, mm. which retells American history, remythologizes America with slavery and subjugation at the center of the story mm-hmm. and as a cause of many of, of the prosperity and other things that America is known for, rather than we call it the 1776 Commission, which only lasted online for like 24 hours, I think. But the, but the spirit of it, the idea that America is exceptional, that all of its prosperity is the result of hard work and the close association of religion and, you know, a free market and, you know, whatever. And my sense is that different communities find their identity within those stories, right? So the community I grew up in pretty self-consciously identified as like, we're the inheritors of that story that started with the pilgrims. Mm -hmm. We care about religious liberty like they do. We care about hard work like they do. We're keeping the faith. We're good citizens were whatever. And it's those coastal elites that are kind of undermining this story that are trying to take it away. And so that, that weird interplay between religious identity, personal identity, national identity, you can see, and you see it at a time of crisis. So like when the 1619 project came out, I remember seeing people experience it as an attack on their Christian identity and trying to figure out what's the, what's the thread that connects those two things. Cause we're talking about national history, which most Americans don't care about until you question, right? Mm-hmm. So you talk about things that happened in the past. We're like, hey, that's the past, man. But then you start talking about heritage, and you're like, that's my heritage. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's, it's yeah. a weird, you it's know, very sort of, selective. It's very it's selective. Very, yeah, that's um, right. And so once it starts to say, like, you have what you have because of the story retold a different way, then people feel that in their bones. And that shows, again, that connection between like the person, the community, the nation. Whatever story is told, it magnifies certain facets and marginalizes or leaves out other things. That's right. In order to reinforce a particular meaning, a particular idea. Yeah. And so that, yeah, that's why we have these tensions. That's right. And I, and I think I like the, the word myth has its problems, but the reason I prefer it over even something like narrative is the word narrative has become a way of talking about how people tell the story to smuggle in ideologies, mm. right? So you talk about the mainstream media narrative about such and such or the conservative media narrative about such and such. And I think that does happen for sure. But I think the 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 myths happen at a more unconscious level so that the average American doesn't question the national 
myth. They're not actively trying to construct it in a way that makes them look good. They just have inherited it and, and don't necessarily realize the degree to which their sense of self and other things are wrapped up in a certain understanding of it until you start to pull at threads. And when you start to, when it starts to unravel a little bit, you become really aware of, of how integrated it is. And the image you give, I've heard you say is that these four myths all interweave like a cloth and so you can't untangle them. So what's the fourth uh, thread? So the fourth would be the, uh, religious slash philosophical. So if a person is not religious, say they're self-consciously atheist, that's a kind of philosophical category. But if a person's a Christian or Buddhist or whatever else, that that fourth one would be that kind of explicit philosophical or religious framework or set of beliefs. Mm. And I think that one's a little bit different. I'm still kind of working out how these things fit together. That one's different in a sense that it is probably the only one that is more self-consciously chosen or cultivated. Mm. So in church, you're spending a lot of time or in religious education, you're spending a lot of time talking explicitly about the contents of your religious myth, but you don't spend a lot of time talking about the contents of those other three much, right? So you inherit a certain view of your religious or philosophical myth from your surroundings, but but we do spend a lot of time like self-consciously digging into doctrine or systems or Yeah, and or just to clarify for our listeners, when you say religious myth, we are not implying that Christians are believing something that is untrue. Correct. Yeah. A myth that creates meaning for us can actually be true and rooted in history. That's right. And that's that's how we understand uh, Christianity. Yeah, and I think you could Google C.S. Lewis has a conversation about Christianity as true myth, that the yes, gospel is yeah. true myth. There and that's we go. a helpful. There we go. So it's it and that's a good succinct sort of discussion to explain what we're talking about. But it it transcends being true and becomes a force to shape how you understand everything else, right? And that's the kind of move that uh yeah, that we mean by myth. All right. Well, you talked about how the last myth, the religious philosophical myth, is the one that we most likely explicitly choose. But in a recent ETS regional talk you gave, you said, my sense is that most Christian discipleship in the West focuses on the personal myth. And you said the personal myth is central to the Western society and discipleship. But focusing exclusively or even primarily on the personal myth ignores others, which I think are more influential and consequential. So uh, help me reconcile uh, where you see Christian discipleship focusing, because if we're more overt with the religious philosophical, it seemed like that would be the focus, but yet you're saying, I think it's more focused on the personal. Yeah. Good. That's a good question. So I think that um, it may be a difference in sort of contents and application, right? So we, when we talk about, um, I was with somebody just yesterday that's planning a, a long, like a year long um, uh, biblical and theological training program for their church, right? So they'll, they'll talk about who is Jesus and what's the church and how do I read the Bible and do it? That's all like a self-conscious focus on religious myth. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, that's probably going to be wrapped up in how this story, how how the contents of our faith help us make sense of our personal identity and personal and our place in the world and our whatever. So, I, so that's what I mean by the sort of focus is often the personal myth. Mm-hmm. If you even think about like the the way we talk about the way evangelicals have talked about conversion since the great, the first great awakening is my life. I, I, I realized that I had lived a life of sin and disillusion or whatever. Nothing made me happy. You know, I, I, I was, I had lost hope. Then I encountered Jesus mm-hmm. and, and understood that my life should be lived in this new way and et cetera. And so, so even there, religious conversion is being told in terms of a personal myth of what I used to think, mm. what happened to me, what I think now. Mm. And the emphasis is pretty heavily on... The testimony, the personal testimony. The, the testimony and on now that I understand my life and I understand its purpose and I understand how... That's that's where the pieces kind of fit together. And so a lot of teaching and preaching falls on... or We might call it felt needs kind of preaching and teaching. But like the key here, the gospel will help you be a better parent. The gospel will help you be a better you know, neighbor so, that will be so a better husband almost, or wife. Discipleship material you're saying is folk, it's almost, you could apply the same materials almost as if there was no community around you is the mentality. Cause it's so focused on you personally 
as if I didn't belong to some other community. And it's sort of, well, yeah, and I think the implications are that you you need to get you right so that then you can go engage your community. Uh, but it sort of starts with you getting the data you need or the formation you need so that you can then go out and be a husband, wife, parent, neighbor, etc. If you think beyond that, just a lot of the tools that are popular in American ministry settings like Enneagram and personality testing and increasingly like trauma uh, care and those kinds of things are very – if you boil them down, they're tools for helping you re-script your personal myth, for helping you understand these past experiences, why they made me think of my life mm. this way. Now let me reimagine them in a different way. They're, they're really like the Enneagram. The reason I always act this way when this happens is because of, well, that's we're you're mythologizing is what you're doing. You're, you're trying to make a coherent story about yourself so very, that all the yeah, parts fit Very in. internally focused on the individual. Right. That's so right. why do you think it is that communal myths are so hard for Americans to recognize? Yeah, because I think that the, um, in part, I think we really believe that the the community has an influence on us for a time. Like when we're children, we all know we can't choose the family we grew up in or where we grew up in. But our American literary tradition, just to get it out of philosophy for a minute, is is like a long tradition of leavers, right? So mm -hmm. it's the pilgrims left the um you know, the the harsh realities of an oppressive uh, English regime where they could come here and uh, and live according to their conscience um, the way they see fit, um, you know, from Huckleberry Finn to, you know, our explorers to everybody. It's all about – it's not about the people who stay in their community. We celebrate the people who leave and who in leaving find out who they really are. Um, when people stay, I think of stories like The Scarlet Letter, the emphasis is on – the individual who stays in an oppressive community and it destroys them. So we have this kind of antagonism built in. Yeah, there's an irony built in. because in Chinese, a lot of Chinese uh, myths, stories, whatever else, it's the in the individual is always the bad guy, you know, you yeah. know and, and then they learn their lesson that they need the community. And that's kind of right. how. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, and it's funny because there's people like uh, Flannery O'Connor, who's one of my favorite fiction writers. A lot of her stories have to do kind of with that, that like taking the individual who's usually celebrated in these stories and their their fixation and psychosis leads them to some violent death usually in which they realize, oh my gosh, I've been going about this all the wrong way, <laughs> right? So so she's trying to take that that in, this celebrated individual and and recognize that like, no, you belong down here in this group. She's ruining the myth though. <laughs> she, that's exactly. <laughs> and I think at some level, what that shows us is we imagine, we've convinced ourselves that we transcend our communities in many ways. I think also for white Americans, it's easy to miss because our communities are primarily uh, um, reinforce our personal myths, right? So like the, we, we, we swim in waters that are familiar all the time, whereas people who are outside of majority culture have to navigate both their own communities and the majority culture community and can see the differences. Mm -hmm. But if you're, an, if you're a white person who occupies entirely white space, you may, have a, you may interact with white people who are more liberal than you or more conservative or whatever, but there's enough shared um, sort of community myth among majority culture people uh, that you can sometimes feel like that community is not actually exerting an influence on you because you can't see it. And so I think this there's a sort of we're blind to the impact of the community on the one hand. On the other, we have this firmly established pattern that the, the, the leavers are the brave ones who get out and make their own way and create their own identity. The irony for me in that is that even in leaving, the community is still the frame of reference. So, so when you leave, you're you're still 
you're leaving the community and your life may be dedicated to continually leaving the community, but that means the community is still the root. That's still where yeah. you, you're that's still, still where you've come, you're still yeah. oriented to it and from it. Um, and so there's a bit of an irony even in that, but I think we sense it at some level, which I think is why when, you know, people meet a violent death in Flannery O'Connor short stories, there's a part of us that's like, it's relieved. It's like we experience some little kind of salvation in that too, because we know that we don't, we're not fully autonomous. We don't completely make ourselves. And I don't think we want to, um, but it's such a strong impulse that's reinforced everywhere. Um, I can imagine a a listener right now going, but what about Christians? What about the church? I mean, when you follow Christ, you get a new religious philosophical lens and then you interpret, you, you, you assess these things accordingly. And so that becomes the dominant lens that you interpret everything else. What would you say to that? Yeah, I think that's certainly the way we talk about it. And it's where the way we talk about apologetics or evangelism a lot of the time is if you start with the sort of foundational philosophical or religious beliefs, there's a good God in the universe who made everything, then... Uh, then you somehow necessarily get to a very specific kind of Christian expression. I, I mean, I think if everybody just listening did a show of hands, like how many of you know a Christian that reveres the scriptures and considers themselves fully authentic and disagrees with you about something important, politics, social issue, or an interpretation of scripture? Everyone knows that person. Mm which goes to show that there's something in addition to those foundational religious beliefs that are shaping your interpretation. There is no such thing as just a pure, uncultured, context-free Christianity, right? And those, so we do all adhere to the same sort of basic belief system. We imagine that our differences are based on what we're reading uh, and how we're deducing it to be consistent with our belief system. But really those interpretations are very heavily influenced by our national myth, our communal myth, our personal myth. I think a good example how the personal myth applies, for example, is how you, um, when people talk about a life verse, Mm -hmm. very often when you choose a life verse, you're choosing a verse in scripture that reinforces an experience you've already had in your life, right? So nobody chooses a life verse that say, there's this verse in Jeremiah that I just hate and I can't resonate with. That's my life verse. Like nobody ever does that, (laughs) right? Um, And if they did, then I would say, great, you're prioritizing the religious myth. Fantastic. (laughs) But most people will start with, you know, uh, I had this experience. I learned this thing about God through that experience. And therefore, this is my my life verse. And so it's reinforcing a personal myth rather than the religious. And it doesn't mean that they're always in open combat with each other. The myths aren't always, uh, you know, um, incongruent or in open conflict. But but I think it helps to think about the ways they are mutually reinforcing and and sometimes do create inconsistencies for us that we have to figure out how to work if out. If anything, it's going to be a matter of the communal myth, national myth, whatever else are going to help you observe certain, certain things in Scripture and overlook other things in Scripture. That's right. And yeah. so it does affect your theology in that respect. Not to say that, okay, let's just say people come from different personal, communal, national myths. They could both come to true theology in in that last little sphere, but yet maybe the emphasis is a little different. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even ways that you, you know, I think there are certain models of biblical finances, for example, that will quote very heavily from the Proverbs Mm. and very little from the Sermon on the Mount. Right. But if you, and that's partly because the Proverbs are really good middle-class financial advice. And the Sermon on the Mount is really bad middle-class financial advice. Don't worry about tomorrow. It'll worry about itself, right? That's bad financial planning. If you happen to have money and are not sure what to do with all of it, you're going to gravitate to Proverbs, I think. If you don't have any money and you're scared to death about it, you're probably going to gravitate to what Jesus has to say about that. And each of those people will then interpret experience that emphasis as a biblical view of money. And in a sense, they both come from the Bible, but they really are kind of connecting with your personal or communal preconception. That's why you prefer that one or gravitate to it over the other. Yeah, that really points out how much ambiguity there is in Scripture, because we can point to Scripture relative to money and come up with different conclusions. I mean, 
or different biases for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's how a good we example. how we embody and how we experience Christian faith is going to be affected by those first three myths. So this raises the question of deconstruction. Yeah, you know, it's become a key word of late. It seems like when there's someone is deconstructing their faith, might not be deconstructing that last story, mm. but maybe the roots of deconstruction are in the other stories. Yeah, that's a great observation. I think that's exactly right. There's a long tradition outside of Christianity of reducing Christian faith and practice to things like economics or nationalism or power or other kinds of things. And so I want to be clear that I'm not we're not doing that move. I'm reading um, Richard Niebuhr's book, The uh, Social Sources of Denominationalism right now, which is 100 years old. And he, he, he basically, I can't remember the exact quote, but he says that basically the social situation creates the the banks the 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 stones and the contours etc that, that faith flows through so it sort of dams up religious experience and makes it go a certain way mm-hmm. and so his point is that like what you believe isn't inconsequential but the shape that your theology takes is going to be determined by your social situation. And I'm not going that far. I'm not saying that these are deterministic. I'm not reducing Christianity to class or power or et cetera. But just to say that it is, he is right in the sense that if you just say our difference is theological, let's talk about theology. The odds are you're never going to actually get to the root of what you're disagreeing about because Mm -hmm. the other influences your personal myth, your community, your communal myth, your, you know, kind of your uh, national myth are all influencing, not determining, not, you know, but influencing the way your kind of faith ideas play out. So if you grew up in a real poor family, Lord, your maybe your theology may uh, have it be that you focus on the poor and a lot of those, you know, social justice issues, whatnot. But maybe if you grew up poor, but then worked hard, started your own business, got wealthy, nice house, then maybe you're going to focus more on, well, you just got to be responsible, do like Proverbs says or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's a great example because it shows that this isn't math. I'm not saying that like there are three options in each myth. And if you just add them up, then you know exactly what a person thinks that some people come from a very privileged background and realize at some point how heavily their class financial situation was affecting their faith and they renounce it and they, you know, do something different with their life, right? So part of their conversion is a social one. Mm -hmm. It's not just religious. It's like once they take the gospel seriously, what that means to them is I got to make some major social changes. Uh, Historically, somebody like St. Francis was that way, right? He went from being a, a, a merchant's child to, you know, evangelizing rabbits and <laughs> birds in the wilderness <laughs> because he realized like holy smokes the this whole system that I'm a part of is about power and money and to follow the true gospel of the true Christ I have to make a change other people go the other way around and say I grew up in this poverty etc and now I realize it was all about laziness and whatever and so I'm going to work hard and what so so there's not it's not one to one it's really a matter of kind of how these dynamics interact with each other and it's really not diagnostic for like, I'm going to try to figure you out and what's wrong with you. <laughs> but but look at myself and say, when I'm reading scripture, when I'm interpreting events and I'm interacting with people who think differently about me, what factors other than my stated belief mm. in the scriptures or stated Christian belief, what others are affecting the way I'm seeing this? And I think that act of self-reflection can be enormously helpful. So, Brandon, are you suggesting that in the work of discipleship that we cultivate greater awareness about our community myth, our national myth, and like, like how do you see that working out in a in discipleship in a local church? Yeah, that's a great. So good. So discipleship and deconstruction. I I avoided the deconstruction question for a minute, but I think these are interrelated because I think at some level, what deconstruction is is like it is discipleship on rewind, right? It's someone saying, "I have been formed to think a certain way." Now it doesn't it doesn't seem right, so I got to kind of undo these layers of discipleship to figure out where things went wrong. Can right? we say it, instead of it doesn't seem right, it seems incomplete? Might that be? Yeah, yeah. I think there's a range. I think it's and that's the trouble with the word deconstruction right now because I think it means everything from I've got some questions to I'm ready to burn this thing to the ground. Right, <laughs> okay. and and yeah. so there's kind of a it, there's a spectrum, yeah. but I think. 
But anecdotally, I don't know as many people who leave Christian faith because they've done a lot of research on Christian faith and decided that they disagreed with it. Mm. I know people who leave Christian faith because they have some, what what we might call a conversion in one of those other three myths. Mm. And once they do, that unified fabric that they had that was made up of those four strands, personal, communal, national, religious, one of them has been pulled out and it, and it just doesn't hold together anymore, yeah. right? So I know people who through therapy have kind of grappled with some personal trauma and re-script their personal myth, right, in a healthy way. This is not a knock against trauma. But then they may realize then that the community that they came up in enabled this terrible thing to happen to them and no one protected them. Mm -hmm. And that makes them then question, I don't understand how this community that said they loved me didn't love me. What else did they tell me that wasn't true? Or right. And if so they it starts said to unravel. They love Jesus, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. So yeah. they said they love Jesus and they love me, but they didn't take care of me. And I don't know what that means about how they really understand Jesus. And then they might find out because of, they engage a new myth about America that it turns out what America has always been about all this time is exploitation and, and oppression and whatever else. And my church has always been a part of just like accepting it. And we do the 4th of July celebration and we do. The, and, and so then it all just kind of unravels. Right. And I don't know that m most of them ever deal with Christianity like kind of on its own in the abstract. But I also think it does a lot of harm to fault them for that. So I do see an increasing number of, of evangelical thinkers, pastors, others saying, well, what you've experienced wasn't true Christianity. You, you need to experience true Christianity before you judge it. And I think, how does a person mm -hmm. experience it other than through their family, through their church, through their, you know, they, they can't. Christianity is embodied. It's embodied. Yeah. And if the form that they've experienced was embodied in a harmful way, that's what they're going to think unless they have a new community experience, which I think is the, is the you know, kind of the saving grace there. It's the, if they get out of that toxic community into one that better integrates these things and better answers their questions, then I think that they can pre preserve their faith. But I think without that community, they probably can't. And so if we kind of anticipate that, then I think, wouldn't it be better if in our discipleship, we were self self-conscious and self-aware about how these other dynamics are always shaping the way we view things and therefore then being more humble about the conclusions, right? That it seems to me that this is what the scriptures say and this is how we should live out our faith, but let's invite somebody else into this conversation and help us see where we might be wrong. And, you know, I think that kind of faith expression would be more resilient to questions or national catastrophe or whatever, because the, because there's a lot of flexibility built into it in the construction yeah. side. As I think, as I hear you talking, I can see a lot of discipleship, material strategies, really being as much as anything about reinforcing subculture lines. Um, and so therefore, like, so you have, there's an errancy debate, but then there's the errancy of your interpretation. Right. And that's one of those places where people will do hard and fast lines. And as I think that the People who have deconstructed most publicly, at least, these are all people who really grew up in a lot of Christian subculture uh, where maybe it was purity culture dynamics that were going on or whatever it may be uh, that all of a sudden they realized, wait a minute, there were some problems here. And so they, they use the old, you know, the worn, you know, they throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so it really, you are sounding the alarm of what is making creating our, our Christian subculture. And I'm not saying that's bad or good, just the subculture that is where we're at. What is contributing to it besides our religious philosophical perspective? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think the most immediate and significant impact is the community, right? It's the, um, it's the, the various community inputs are the things that are most significant. And I say various because, you know, everybody has like, there's the church community, but then there's the neighborhood and then there's the, you know, where your kids go to school or where you work and there's, there's various communities and you just kind of have to excavate, right? Kind of ask the questions about, um, but I remember being in churches before where like, you know, even if you're talking about contextualization, if you're talking about contextualizing your worship programs, et cetera, to reach a certain kind of people, right? then it's worth recognizing that then you're 
you have to be pretty narrow. You can't plant a church for all of Phoenix, right? Because mm -hmm. all of Phoenix is not the same. Mm -hmm. So you're going to make choices that will attract some people and will not be attractive to other people. That means then you're going to be, if you're not careful, attracting a pretty homogenous community that then reinforces certain presuppositions, et cetera. And, and so what started as a very open community over time becomes a pretty narrow one because the people who stay and grow up and whatever all think in very similar kinds of ways because they've been shaped by this community. So I think it's worth then saying like, how do I counteract that very natural tendency mm -hmm. by making sure that my community is always engaged in fruitful fellowship with people who aren't like us so they can keep, they can keep us open, right. And, and keep us from getting closed. And I think that's a, um, I, I think in some ways that's what we see in the new Testament when, the very first Christians are Jewish background. Then you have this kind of growing group of Gentile background Christians. Their point of reference for following Jesus is totally different. So for somebody like Peter, the point of reference for following Jesus is temple, prayer, Torah, etc. But doing it in this way that I now understand is the right way because I follow Jesus. For the Gentile background believers, it's, you know, marketplace sacrificial <laughs> worship, etc. But now I'm following Jesus. So how do I do that? Like vastly different ways of life. And if you think of it in these sort of sociological terms, right there, they eat different, they speak differently, they dress differently, they have different mores, they have different. And God says, instead of make a Jewish church and a Gentile church, I want you to sit at a table together and grow up into me, the head, and become a new community. It's not a Jewish Christian community. It's not a Gentile Christian community. It's a combined community. It's a new humanity. It's a new humanity, right. right. And right. we can abstract that in really unhelpful ways by just, you know, by kind of turning it into a platitude of we're all one in Jesus and whatever without missing the, like, real tactical challenges that comes with that. It's, it means people with vastly different experiences and presuppositions working through them together toward Jesus. Yeah, right? it's easy to imagine it, harder to embody it. That's right. I mean, actually working that out in a in a local setting is yeah, challenging. Well, and we you know, we're new to town here and so we're um we are a diverse family by adoption and so it's uh, so having a diverse set of communities is important to us and I think even just as an exercise in thinking about how these communities shape us that like we self-consciously chose a diverse church for worship. That's our children's, that's our primary community. Outside of that, it is very hard to find diverse school for children, diverse neighborhood for our family, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so when you begin to really think about the kind of radical cultural diversity that the gospel is encouraging, right? And that the early church embodies, you realize that like all of our society works very hard against that kind of cross-cultural interaction mm -hmm. because the way houses are zoned, the way migration happens, the way whatever happened, you can have a very diverse church and then it's very hard to find a diverse school in neighborhood mm -hmm. or you can have a very, you know, it's, you might find one of the three, but mm -hmm. it's very hard to find all three depending on where you live. But those things will continue to exert an influence on how you see things. And so it, being as intentional as you can about them think is really important. And even just kind of thinking through how many of my interactions are in a week or with people who look like me, who believe like me, who whatever, and kind of just taking an, an audit can kind of help you say, well, that makes sense why this interpretation seems self-evident because it probably seems self-evident to everyone that I know. And then you're beginning to see, well, maybe it's not, maybe it's just this shared you know, misreading <laughs> yeah, yeah. that, uh, and maybe somebody else could help me see it differently. I see a discipleship tool in the making hmm. there yeah. where we're <laughs> taking an audit of how many yeah. relationship, how much relationship time we're spending with people unlike ourselves. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, who would have thought that that would help us follow Jesus? Well, time has flown. And in order, as we wrap up this conversation, I have a, one more bare question and just a few smaller ones for you. Yeah. And it's kind of a, Maybe a softball because it's kind of too big for you. And is, <laughs> this conversation has talked a lot about analyzing one's perspective and various myths. How does all this come back to the task of contextualization, yeah. which seems more of a 
constructive, right. proactive thing. How does this yeah, relate? That's great. So I think to uh, make it as short as I can, um, going back to the beginning, if if you conceive of contextualization as a one word, a one way journey in which I have the contents and I just need to deliver them to you in a way that you can receive them, then this will probably not be terribly helpful and will probably frustrate you. But if you recognize that this process of contextualization is really I'm entering a dialogue in which I, my sharing with you is going to help me see things about myself that I didn't see before. Mm. And I, I obviously believe that this gospel is going to change your life. So it's going to help you see things about yourself that you didn't see before. Part of so so going into it with that expectation means that you should go in expecting these various myths to be uncovered, challenged, etc. And if you go into that process having already done that spade work of saying what other things contribute to the way I interpret the faith, then I think when you encounter somebody who has a question about the Bible, you may say, this isn't actually a question about the Bible. This is a question about national identity, mm. or this is a question about personal experience. This is, you know what I'm saying? Like it yeah. can kind of help you. Yeah. And this is, as you spoke, I think about many missionaries in China that I saw, they were always and only addressing the religious philosophical issues. And they were very rarely thinking about the personal, communal, national, which is why I started thinking through honor, shame issues. I'm like, this is the stuff that's foot hits the ground type stuff. Yeah. They're not necessarily thinking through theologies of whatnot that you're trying to correct. That's right. Yeah. And I think it helps, you know, I've even used this kind of as a diagnostic with people that I know and like and disagree with, and we're debating something and I'm thinking, are, do we disagree fundamentally about the tenets of Christianity? No, that's what we're arguing about, but that's not what we, we don't disagree there. Mm. Do we disagree about what America is? Mm. Maybe, but I think, you know, in some cases, nope, we, we agree there. So what is it that's different? It's this, ah, you were shaped by a very different community than I was shaped by, and I can't see past it, and you can't see past it. So if we can name that, like, I feel like we're disagreeing on this kind of level of communal myth rather than these other things. Yeah. Let's unpack that. Then I think you can actually get somewhere, right? And then, But that, that means you can get there on dis discipleship. It means I think with evangelism, you could start in any of those rather than just jumping to the religious myth to say, you know, if somebody's really struggling with understanding themselves in light of the community or something, we'll start there with evangelism, like start to follow that thread because they all connect. And so if deconstruction involves a breach in all of them, I think discipleship requires sort of faithful attention, but that means so does evangelism, so does apologetics, what it, right? So you're, I, I, for me, it creates some complications initially, but I think once you kind of get your head around it, it opens up a lot of pathways that is, it's actually kind of exhilarating to say, I think I could talk to anybody about this. I don't know how the conversation is going to end, but I've got these four entry points and I can kind of hop in and we'll see where it takes us. And I, I find that exciting at yeah. the very least. Well, uh, you know, this is our, our podcast is called Doing Theology Thinking Mission. It, yeah. We're looking at the intersection of those two. And so here are a couple of questions that we like to ask people, yeah. uh, and especially you being a generalist. Uh, <laughs> I'm curious what you would say on this. Uh, they sound softballish, but we'll just see how you take it. What should missions be learning from theology? And then vice versa, what should theologians be learning from missiologists? Yeah, I think so. What should missions be? learning from theology? That's a good question. It's hard for me to answer that one because I've been more steeped there and have been trying to catch up in missiology. So my head is, you know, kind of in the other space. Um, I think that, you know, the, theologians crave integration and coherence. It, it's system building. Um, it can be the weakness when things become sort of syllogistic, like if this, then therefore that, right? And you can kind of tie yourself up in knots a little bit. But I do think that theology brings a sort of creative impulse to, to integrate. Mm. I think missiology shares that, but kind of like at, a, at, the, at the more raw data level of like ethnography and other things, mm. that they're very concerned about particulars, whereas the, theology is more concerned about universals. And so I think that there's the universals without the particularities will get you into an abstraction that doesn't really help anybody. Mm. If uh, what missiology does, I think that tempers theology is it, it forces them to deal with particulars. Like, mm. but what about this group? What about this group? What about this group? Um, that I think is hugely important. So the two in conversation gives you the kind of fruitful tension that 
you know, like on a guitar street, you don't get a, you don't get a musical note without those two ends pulling on each other. And I think if you have one group of people pushing into particularities and one into that more constructive universal side, then you, you get something together that neither group might might be able to get apart. Yeah, I like the metaphor you give because I often find that the two aren't in conversation, so the string is broken. It doesn't make pretty music. That's right. And it's kind of, yeah, clanging when you try to combine them yourself. <laughs> you get a lot of clanging, don't you? <laughs> yeah. So what are you working on these days? Yeah, so I'm trying to work on uh, this, kind of work out this framework and figure out, it, it, it is conceptual in my brain. I think I sense practical application, but I don't have it there yet. And so I'm trying to get it there. And I'm doing that in conversation with some partners at City to City and a couple parts of the world where, uh, yeah, I'm eager to see how the those different contexts problematize the framework. Because it started as me just trying to understand what's happening with American Christians right now, right? So not meant to be a universal theory of everything, but just trying to kind of diagnose. And so I'm very interested to see as that interacts with a, a more and more diverse range of of uh, Christians. What what comes out it's of like that. what discipleship and contextualization means in light of the things you've been saying. Exactly. Yeah. And I, in fact, I shared it with uh, some friends in one part of the world, and they said, "This is so helpful." But how do we how do we do discipleship? And I said, "I don't know. I'm not there yet." <laughs> and they're like, "We'll get there because we're, we're getting started." You know. And I think so. Yeah. I think trying to form that sort of constructive. What are the steps or stages for discipleship if if these things are true and helpful. All right. So last question, because uh, you're always reading, uh, what do, what have you been reading or enjoying lately that you think, you know, you would recommend to others? Yeah. Well, I, I mentioned the Niebuhr's book, The Social Sources of Denominationalism. I don't know if you need to read the whole thing, but the first chapter or so kind of gives out the... That's true for a lot of the books. shapes of yeah exactly. I had a friend who said most books should have been an article and most articles should have been a tweet, and that's probably <laughs> true. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think I find myself agreeing with a third of it and disagreeing with a third of it and unsure about a third of it. I would put the emphasis in different places, but I think he does sort of spell out nicely, like if you, how does your participation in this particular class of people affect what parts of Christianity you? hold on to and which parts you let go. And I think it's a more more social science approach than some people would be comfortable with. But if you just go into it knowing you're not going to agree with everything, it's a really helpful. Well, it sounds like uh, it's really actually helpful. an exercise of what you're talking about is if anything, it's helping you to see what is our social national story that's influencing us. It's, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think, yeah, just, I mean, to that point, he's, he's sort of validating that he doesn't really talk about the personal story much, but the other three, communal, national, religious, and how they interact. He's hitting on heavily, and I and I do keep seeing some little signs that those four categories are useful ones in other things that I'm reading, and and so he's one that affirms the project largely, but then takes it in a route that or to conclusions that maybe I wouldn't yeah. take it in. So, well, Brandon, this conversation has been so fun. Thank you. Yeah, my I, pleasure. I mean, we could have we could have gone on for hours, but uh, nobody be listening. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just do it again next Wednesday. We'll just. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> All right, everyone, if you found this helpful, uh, uh, give us uh, five stars wherever you listen to uh, this podcast. Uh, tell your friends about it and keep the conversation going. Thanks for joining.